Welcome to the Logos Daily Podcast. At Logos Daily, we offer Logos Bible software coaching, Christian book reviews, and relevant interviews to reflect on life as a believer and to help keep us all growing. For more information about our coaching services or anything that Logos Daily has to offer, please go to our website at logos-daily.com. That's L-O-G-O-S-daily.com. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Logos Daily Podcast. At Logos Daily, we offer Logos Bible software coaching, Christian book reviews, and relevant interviews to reflect on life as a believer and to help keep us all growing. For more information about our coaching services or anything that Logos Daily has to offer, please go to our website at logos-daily.com. That's L-O-G-O-S-daily.com. Enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to the next episode of our Brave Daily interview. My name is Ryland Brown. I'm the director of production for Brave Daily, and I've got a special guest with me today. I've got Mark Ward. I am so excited uh, to talk to him. He is a fascinating individual. If you've been connected to the Faith Life or Logos ecosystem, surely you recognize his name. I listen to his podcast, the Bible Study Magazine podcast regularly, which I recommend to everyone. It's fascinating. Uh, Mark, welcome to, we do this, I don't know if to call it a podcast or a video series because we do both, but welcome to whatever we're doing. I'm glad to be here wherever I am. <laughs> and uh, now, so for those who don't know you, can you share kind of about who you are, your work, uh, some personal details, family life, those sorts of things? Uh, the reason you are talking to me, I think, is that I work for Faith Life right now. I'm the editor-in-chief of Bible Study Magazine. Um, that's a new role for me. This is kind of my third role at Faith Life. Before that, I was an academic editor at Lexham Press for two and a half years, working on special projects like the uh, Lexham Context Commentary and the Lexham Survey of Theology. The LST was my probably biggest contribution during that time. There's some other stuff I worked on then that should be coming out, Lord willing, in the next year or two. A uh, series of, uh, well, I can't say, <laughs> secret cool stuff. <laughs> um, and I, before that, I was a Logos Pro. And you and I were talking before this, and I'm just so excited for what you're doing. I, I was minimally aware, and now I'm going to take a closer look because I think the thing your your team is doing, training people and coaching them in, in Logos or Logos. I wrote the post that says you can say either one. I usually say Logos for people who know Greek. Yep. Um, I think that's really fantastic. I love being a Logos pro. And when I came on as a Logos pro in 2015, I told my boss uh, who was forming that team, I, I said, I want to write. And praise God, he's like, I'm going to make a way for you. There was no kind of established you know, process for this. So, but that's what I did. And I ended up writing about 200 different articles uh, for the Logos blog and for Bible study magazine and for various things. And some of that helped me get into write authorized the use and misuse of the King James Bible for Lexham Press before I came on as an editor there. Uh, they accepted that book. And then Bob was like, let's turn it into a documentary. You've already done the work, so let's do it. So that was extremely fun. I've been really grateful to the Lord for that opportunity and the many others I've had at Faith Life. I have a wife and three children who live with me here about half an hour south of Bellingham where the Faith Life campus is. I have my BA, MA, and PhD from uh, Bob Jones University in Greenville, South Carolina. And before I came to Faith Life, I was a Bible curriculum author on the secondary, the high school level for BJU Press. And I still do a little freelance work for them because I really care about their mission. Oh, that's awesome. And uh, you're also the owner of the website by faithweunderstand.com, 
which has some great articles. You are a prolific author. I don't know how you have time to sleep. Um, and then for those of you who have not read uh, Dr. Ward's work, it, it is, it's winsome. It, there are several, I've read your, your uh, the authorized, the King James book, and there were several times that I, I was almost laughing uh, because it was just, in fact, I want to read you my favorite quote from the book. The bylaws of Christian publishing require at least one chapter in each Christian book to begin with the C.S. Lewis quote. And when I read that, I thought that this is, this is my guy. But you take things that are, can kind of be contentious in some Christian circles and really make them accessible to the average person. So I appreciate your work. Oh, thank you. That's exactly what I prayed for. And my wife is sitting in the other room over there as our kids are up for rest time. And you got to thank her because she's been a massive help to me. She herself has a seminary degree and I read the book to her, you know, while I was working on it. And she really pushed me in some key places to be gracious. And I think it finally clicked. And I, I, I'm really overjoyed to say I've heard from a lot of gracious opponents um, and I, I didn't know to expect that, but I found that not only does a soft answer turn away wrath, to quote the King James, yes. but it actually invites discussion and, uh, and creates friends. Mm -hmm. um, so I, that's another part of my uh, uh, life's journey that um, I, I just rejoice in what the Lord has done for me and hopefully for the church. Oh, that's great. And you're exactly right. Your work is balanced. Because you talk about what goes away when we lose the, or what we lose if the King James goes away, uh, but you also talk about what we gain with other translations. So we're going to put links to your books on the description wherever you're listening or watching, uh, both Logos and Amazon copies, and I encourage you to uh, to go get it. And you had said, uh, you know, whether it's Logos or Logos, I was told you never make fun of someone who mispronounces a word because it means they've read it somewhere, and uh, uh -huh. and so we're just glad they're reading is uh that's is a great point doing, so yeah I, my eldest child is 10 and he's kind of your classic homeschooler and we got him a kindle when he was like eight uh -huh. and so that sort of thing happens all the time and i feel exactly the way you do <laughs> well i want to talk about several things today your latest book the bible in general and logos bible software and let's start with your latest book bibliology for beginners what does the bible say about the bible i, I read it earlier great book for those who aren't familiar with uh, bibliology, what is that? Because, you know, it's kind of a, a big word. It's one of those, maybe a dollar word, as we might say. Yeah. Yeah, well, there are the classic loci, you know, areas of systematic theology. Pneumatology is the doctrine of the Spirit. Ecclesiology is the doctrine of the Church. Christology is the doctrine of Christ. Theology proper, the doctrine of God. And uh, bibliology is the conventional term. I don't know how long it goes back in time. It doesn't sound to me like something that's existed for much longer than maybe the 19th century. I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's the doctrine of scripture, the doctrine of the Bible. And um, I have found that my work and my calling to, uh, to focus on translation, especially because I come out of King James-only circles, that's what I was raised in, especially in my high school years, um, that turned my focus to bibliology more generally. I saw that there are, there, are, um, there are doctrinal issues that come up when you debate Bible translation. And so I needed to dig into textual criticism and into canon and certainly into inerrancy and clarity and sufficiency, necessity, 
um, all the uh, really long-term discussions about the Bible. And I, I am alarmed um, at the possibility that uh, any kind of onlyism, not just King James onlyism, will come and grab disciples that um, you know good faithful churches are working to disciple and it'll pull them into a lifelong or maybe multi-year long uh, track through error which is so unnecessary so when a friend said would a pastor friend in new york city would you please write a book for our discipleship curriculum on bibliology um, i saw an opportunity to put down some of my work on this uh, and um, and especially give a little more focus than I've seen elsewhere in inoculating new believers against any kind of onlyism, mm -hmm. King James onlyism or ESV onlyism or NIV onlyism or whatever. No, that's so helpful. And in your book, you argue that the Bible itself calls for Bible translation, which I, I thought that was an interesting uh, thing to think about. But what do you mean by that? And let me put some context on it of someone like me, I'll just use me as an example, where I, I use the NASB, great translation. They're coming out with the 2020. I'm happy with the 1995. Why do we need updated Bible versions in different languages uh, that are somewhat modern? And as a follow-up question, how often should that take place? Okay. I, I think I got three questions there. <laughs> yes. Let me see if I can keep those in mind. All right. Um, I do the same thing to my interviewees. I get so interested in what they have to say that I ask them three or four questions at a time. Okay. First question, why do we need, uh, does, where does the Bible say that we need to translate yeah. the Bible? And I want to acknowledge that nowhere does it say quite that clearly, thou shalt translate the Bible. Um, and there's no version of scripture, which has a verse that, you know, the one you use doesn't have that says this, but um, throughout, throughout time, um, Christians have taken the great commission of Matthew 28, disciple the nations, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you as necessitating, uh, if, if not, you know, at least implying the necessity of Bible translation. And I think the value in, uh, of Bible translation into the vernacular languages that people can actually speak has, act, has demonstrated itself over and over again. And, you know, that's true even though there are cultish groups that appeal to Bible verses too. And even though, yeah, every time you put out a vernacular Bible translation, you have tons of people disagreeing about what the Bible means. You, you spread out the, the, the magisterium, as it were, that the Catholic Church has. Uh, into the you know priesthood of all believers, that creates problems. But uh, the Christian Church, the Orthodox Christian Church, over time has come to see that the value of teaching people to observe everything Jesus has commanded by handing them a Bible translation that they can actually study on their own far exceeds the dangers that do yes come along with it because we're in a fallen world. First Corinthians fourteen is a passage I've also spent a good bit of time in. It says that edification requires intelligibility, and though Paul applies that principle to the speaking of tongues and the translation of tongues in church, um, I've argued that that passage really just puts a stamp on the commonsensical notion that if you're going to bother to translate something, you might as well translate it into the language that people actually speak and write. Okay, Why do we need multiple translations, or why do we need the ones that we have? Um, 
What I like to say is that the major evangelical English Bible translations we have, and I'll, I'll list a number of them, I'm probably going to forget one, but, you know, kind of going from um, the more formal to the more functional, the more literal to the more dynamic, some people say. You've got your Lexham English Bible, got to put that one in there, the New American Standard Bible, you've got your King James and your ESV, you've got your um, uh, CSB, Christian Standard Bible, your NIV, your NLT, and I, I put the message out there, you know, it's on the paraphrastic end of the spectrum. I still see some uses for it. I uh, wouldn't call it a Bible translation, although it includes a lot of Bible translation. Mm -hmm. What I like to say is that those major evangelical translations have staked out usefully different spots on the spectrum from formal or literal to functional or dynamic. How often should they be translated or revised I've suggested that we go for something like every 50 years. And one of my, um, boy, this is going to sound too strong, but beefs with the evangelical publishing industry is that people have looked out more for maybe their own interests than those of the church at mm -hmm. times. And I'd like to see something like the ECPA, you know, Evangelical Christian Publishers Association, or somebody with guts and authority. I don't know who that would be, because evangelicalism has no pope, uh, to step in and say, you know, guys, we've got this good set of translations. Let's not have any more, and let's put the re revisions on a schedule. Because although it doesn't threaten me or bother me that I might have two different editions of the ESV on my shelf that are slightly different in ways, and, and I do, on that shelf, there are two different editions of the ESV that are slightly different. I see how even highly educated uh, Christian people that I've known, like I knew a PhD in history, uh, was kind of alarmed by this. And we can't just be driving the sheep back and forth across the pasture. We need to settle down now. Uh, revisions need to happen because we find, you know, little errors that we didn't know we made, or we get new light on some obscure Hebrew name for an animal somewhere. We might as well update that when we can. Uh, and English changes over time, so I'm I say every 50 years or so. Um, it's happening more frequently than that, and that's caused some problems. I, I've done some writing on this to try to calm us all down. I hope that answers, answers all three of your questions. It does. And you're preaching to the choir. I've, I've got some friends that I'll talk to about this every, you know, several months of my beef. That, that's the perfect word for it is really it's driven more by publishing than it is to help the church. And I love Christian publishers. We are right. in the golden age of Bible translation. Uh, you know, I, I can't, I can count, but I've not counted the amount of Bible translations I own, but I agree wholeheartedly. And you address some of that in your uh, the misused verse, the our, uh, the G King James Bible book uh, that you've written. Um, but it, coming back to your book uh, about uh, the, the study of the Bible, and in your book, you talk about inspiration. And I hear that word being used a couple different ways today. I grew up with a, a, an understanding of this is the inspired word of God. But sometimes I hear people say that it's an inspiring book in the same way that other books are inspiring. So when you say you use a couple words, inspired and even inerrant, what do you mean by those so we can have working definitions of what the Bible is? I tried to take the subtitle of my new little book, uh, What the Bible Says About the Bible, very seriously. 
And that's easiest to do when it comes to the word inspired. It's not quite so easy when we get to inerrant. We'll get there in a second. Mm -hmm. But inspired is just a Bible word. We're just trying to, in systematic theology, put together the Bible's teaching on a topic and as much as possible, use the words the Bible uses. So the word in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 is God breathed. The scripture is God breathed. Christians have always taken that to refer to the Old Testament and New Testament scriptures. Peter referred to Paul's writings in 2 Peter 3 as scripture. It seems to be a technical term. Even back then, the church was recognizing that these are not just the words of Paul, but the words of the Spirit and the words of God. They, they are God breathed through the pen of Paul or Moses or Jude or James, etc. Um, so inspiring they may be, and they certainly mm -hmm. are. My mind goes right to the Psalms. I'm inspired by the Psalms. I'm inspired by the stories of David. That's all good. Nothing wrong with saying that. But when we say that the Bible is inspired, we're using it as a technical term mm -hmm. to represent the teaching of Second Timothy 3, that all of these words come from God. I was just looking at Acts 4, I think it is, and it says, I'm going to get this a little confused. I don't have it perfectly memorized, but um, the, the Holy Spirit spoke by the tongue of David, and then the, <clears throat> the apostles assign all of those words back to God. It, it's like, in a way, it's really confusing and contradictory. <laughs> How can two people be speaking at once? But that is the teaching of the Bible that it's God speaking and it's the person speaking. And uh, that's where we get to the word inerrant. Uh, it's not a Bible word, although you can certainly point to many passages, but it, 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 it's a word that we've used in systematic theology, like the word Trinity, to sum up the teaching of the Bible. So Jesus says the scriptures cannot be broken, or the Bible talks about God who cannot lie. If the Bible is inspired, that is God breathed, it's God speaking, then nothing it affirms can be false and nothing it denies can be true. Um, the, the inerrancy is a newer word and sometimes people complain about it, especially those who are, I'm gonna say, drifting off to the left theologically. Mm -hmm. um, and they, they do, they can make some helpful points like we got to be careful not to claim more than the Bible is claiming. Mm -hmm. um, if there's figurative language, you know, uh, we've got to interpret it that way. But I think evangelicals in the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy from back in the 80s, I think, they, we have been sufficiently careful to distinguish what we're saying inerrancy means, trying to match it with the scripture rather than impose uh, our expectations on it. But, you know, the six-year-old kid who knows the Bible is God's word, uh, God's not going to lie. That's inerrancy. Yep. He's, he's got it down, even if he needs to add some niceties over time. Well, that that is so, so helpful for me as I think through this issue, you hit on several things, you know, you, you knew where I was going. And to me, it goes back to that question. People will say, do you take the Bible literally? And I'll say, well, it really depends what you mean by that. When you say, do you take the Bible literally? What I think they are trying to say is often, do you take the Bible authoritatively? And as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, without question, I take the Bible authoritatively. But there, there does seem to be today in 2020 some misuse of English words because we're not on the same page, you know, within evangelicalism anymore on this issue. And your book does a nice job of 
kind of bringing those bigger issues that have really been standard for evangelicals, for Christians since the beginning of the church into an easy understand for beginners, uh, but certainly a refresher for someone like me. Uh, so do you have, you're, you're in Logos, you use Bible software. I've seen on your line that you use multiple kinds of software. Do you have a preference between bound Bibles and digital Bibles? Uh, or, or do you say it's all digital anymore? Uh -huh. I, I like to preach from a physical Bible. I think that the main reason I do that is so that I can hold it up and so people can see that I'm looking down at it. I actually will have my iPad here and my physical Bible right next to it. And I will like almost theatrically look down at my Bible while I'm preaching. Why? To communicate to people. Yeah. I'm not making this stuff up. I'm, I'm, I'm wanting them to, to put their heads down and look, look down at the Bible passage. Um, I'm not going to complain if people bring digital Bibles. How could I? Because I work for Faith Life, Logos Bible Software. Um, and when I'm in church and I have little kids, uh, 10, 9, and 6 now, they're getting older. It's easier now. But especially when my littlest one was really little, it was all I could do to have my Bible on my phone and have him on my lap. Um, but um, and in my personal life, I am using digital Bibles almost exclusively. Recently, in the last couple of years, I've been listening to the Bible a lot. I love the TNIV, the Bible experience. It's really, really well done. I'm listening to a New King James audio Bible now. I'll probably go on to the CSB after that. But I find that if I'm reading a paper Bible, I get a little frustrated because I can't really quickly get to the Greek and Hebrew. Um, I, I can't just whip around like I can in Logos and other Bible software. So yeah, I'm mostly digital. Uh, that's, that's, I'm, I'm the same way. I do give the people at our church a hard time for bringing, uh, I want a bound copy. And I tell them, uh, your kids aren't going to want your iPad. They might now, but they will want the Bible that you used. Um, mm. And so there, there's something to it. So let's talk Logos Bible software. How, you, you mentioned it, you work for Faith Life. How do you use it in your personal life? I think all of us who aren't part of the Faith Life uh, workforce are, are wondering how do Faith Life and Logos employees actually use the software? Well, they do give us an upgrade to the latest edition every time we put one out. And that means I also get the books for the package that I'm at. I'm not sure if they want me to say what package I get. It, I don't get, you know, just automatically the yeah. huge ones, collectors of portfolio sure. or anything. But I had, I spent $3,000 plus before I ever came to the company. I don't know where I got that money as a poor graduate student. Uh -huh. um, but I spent it on Logos and I was very happy. That's one of the reasons I came. There are many people at Faith Life uh, who came because they love the software and or love the mission, especially at Lexham Press. I'm rubbing shoulders all the time. Well, when there's not a global pandemic, I'm rubbing shoulders with um, a lot of uh, evangelical biblical studies and theology PhDs. And um, some of them are actually more paper people. We got one guy in our office who doesn't even use it, but um, a lot of the people who work for Faith Life, they do it because they, they love Logos. I use it all the time for everything. Yeah. Uh, I do still check some online uh, resources. Bible Hub is awfully convenient. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I just need to see one verse in multiple versions right away. So I'll use that. And I'm here to acknowledge that I do still use Bible Works. I was a trainer for them. And there's just a couple little tasks that, it, that I prefer the way it does things. Um, 
but for commentary use and for the Bible word study tool and for just in general checking around in the biblical texts, um, Logos is unparalleled. And people will tell me, especially when I was a Logos Pro, they would say embarrassingly to the, you know, they, they would feel embarrassed and say, oh, I only use 5% of the software's capabilities. And I tried to tell them, don't feel bad about that. As long as that's bringing you value, I, I only use probably 10%. Uh, how often do I really need to use the text transliteration tool? You know, once yeah. a year or twice a year when I need it, it's there and I'm really glad for it. But mostly I am pulling up the passage guide and opening up a bunch of commentaries uh, or I'm pulling up a Bible text and I'm running a Bible word study on a given word. And I don't feel bad at all about not using all of the bells and whistles all the time. Those things alone are just massively helpful because when I study the Bible, I want to go first to the text mm -hmm. and Logos makes that really easy and beautiful. I love that they have good typography. I really care about that. Uh, and then I want to go to the history of interpretation, especially focusing on recent history. I want to know the, you know, the roundup of recent discussions. And so I go to my commentaries and you just cannot, you, you cannot, unless you happen to get to the one estate sale of an expository preacher, you know, um, get as good a deal on commentary sets as you do in Logos. You can't do that anywhere else are certainly not in print. So I've got all the major standards and a bunch of other stuff that I've gotten over the years. Sometimes I will check every single one. I just want to run a referendum. How has this uh, passage been used or interpreted or applied over time? Oh, you're so right. So my library is about 6,500 books. I don't think I ever owned before I went to Lagos had more than 700, 600. I just didn't have room in my office for them. And you know, the, the, packages that Logos has is just absolutely phenomenal. And I want to come back to, you mentioned Lexum Press and just give a plug to them. The work that Lexum Press is doing in my uh, unprofessional, non-academic opinion is the best stuff that is out there right now. Uh, the context commentaries are phenomenal. The high definition stuff that is happening. Uh, Lexum Press, for those who are thinking about where do I need to get resources, the stuff that Lexum Press is, is putting out is far and above uh, a lot of other publishing houses, but there's a lot of good resources out there, but I just think they're, they're knocking it out of the park um, all the way around. Well, what's your favorite feature when it comes to the software? I'm going to have to point to the Bible word study tool. Yeah. Um, you know, we were taught when we, especially on the Logos Pro team, uh, coming out at Faith Life, we don't need to put down other software packages, okay? You know, there are other great packages. It depends on what your calling is, what, what you might want to use. Um, now we've absorbed word search uh, recently, so that competitor is gone, and BibleWorks is gone too. The company is dead, although the software still runs. I do still run it. Um, what I always used to do in BibleWorks was use the Use tab or just search for a given morphological form, a lemma form, you know, the dictionary uh, head word uh, in Greek or Hebrew. And I just would look at the usage. Um, I love lexicography. I'm an amateur, not a professional in it, but I've been doing it on my own for a good 15 years where before I even look at the dictionary, I wanna see how does this word get used within the biblical text. And I thought nothing could ever beat the Bible works use tab because it was instantaneous. 
and it gave me all the information I thought I needed. Well, then I saw the Bible word study tool in Logos. And before I came to the company, I, I kind of rolled my eyes, turned up my nose and said, ah, that's just a bunch of eye candy. You know, Bible works just, just gives me the nitty gritty, just the data. But then I actually started to take a look at the Bible word study tool uh, more so after I came on at the company and I realized, wait a minute, it isn't just eye candy. They've organized the data and added some more data that I wasn't customarily, you know, bringing into my word studies. Um, for example, a big one is how does this given Greek word, what, what Hebrew words does it translate in the Septuagint and how does it get used in the Septuagint? That's pretty huge. And if your tool doesn't do that for you automatically, every time you run a word study, then you're just not going to look at that stuff. And there's more, there's more elements of the Bible word study. I don't use all of it every single time, mm -hmm. but I will regularly go down the entire thing. I, that's a perfect example of the kind of thing that Logos does. And you, you kind of, you, you have to have biblical studies, geeks and nerds and PhDs and stuff. Uh, and MDivs, uh, people with a pastoral bent who are working on this software. And we've got, we, I know one software developer who is a pastor in his church. You know, we've got people like that. We've got numbers of people like that. Um, we're coming up with this stuff uh, because we see the need for it. We know what Bible students mm -hmm. need. Um, so the Bible word study is a great example of the kind of thing Logos does really well and something that I use all the time. Me too. This one may be harder to answer, but what do you think the most underutilized feature of the software is? Ooh. I, for some reason, my mind goes to the sermon builder, and I myself don't currently use it because I am not a preaching pastor. I'm just about to be ordained as an assistant pastor at my church, and I, I function as a regular Sunday school teacher there and music director. Um, but I don't write that many sermons in a given year, so I, I don't use it. But um, I tend to think that I, I don't like have usage data on it. Yeah. Um, one of my colleagues, Phil, I think you might know of, um, he would have the usage data on this. But uh, I'm just guessing that there are more pastors out there. If you're using Microsoft Word to write your sermons right now and you're using PowerPoint, um, you should definitely be switching over to Sermon Builder and Proclaim. There's just, I, I can't believe nobody invented this before that, I, that I've ever seen, that you write out your outline and just automatically create slides. I think that's really fantastic. And I don't know why I never thought of this before, but they put in speaker notes and speaker styles mm -hmm. so that what you see in your sermon manuscript includes little things such as I would write to myself, you know, have people turn to such and such passage. Well, you don't want that verbiage to go up in the published version online or display in your uh, proclaim presentation. They just thought of everything. I had a small part to play when Sermon Editor first came out, um, but most of everything came from the brilliant guys and girls around the company and other places. I think that's a, I'm guessing that's an underutilized feature. That is probably, besides the fact book, the Sermon Builder is probably my favorite new feature about Logos 9. In fact, anybody who does interviews, I'm using the preaching mode on my interview questions because it does the time for me um, up at the top. And so I have loved that feature on my iPad. Anybody, what you said, Mark, is exactly right. Anybody who's using Word and PowerPoint needs to check out uh, Logos 9. 
And then finally, everybody has their list for the end of the year of their favorites. And I'm always interested to know, especially by someone who's so accomplished, what books have you read in 2020 that have stuck out to you that said, these are going to be helpful? And that may be hard. I would need to look on Goodreads. I do, I've been religiously using Goodreads um, for many years now. And let me just go right to my shelves and try not to take too long with this. I try to read uh, about a book a week during the, uh, every year. And I'm just gonna look down. Um, Lawrence Principe, Science and Religion from the Great Courses. He's, I don't think he's any kind of Christian, but that was really, really helpful. Um, Dynasty, The Rise and, no, 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 not, not that one. Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World by Tom Holland. Uh, Tim Keller wrote about that at the Gospel Coalition. And um, you want to read Keller's article before you read the book, but he really makes a profound point. Also, I believe, at least I know he grew up Anglican, lost his faith. I sort of got a hint somewhere that he might have regained his faith. I'm not sure, but it's a masterful and massive book going through history showing the influence of Christianity. Bavink, A Critical Biography by James Eglinton was really helpful. Breaking Bread with the Dead by Alan Jacobs. He's one of my very favorite writers. I read two volumes of Taylor Branch's um, History of the Civil Rights Movement, and um, I felt like I needed to go to someone who was res doing responsible reportage more so than um, analysis and critique and evaluation. And he did. I was extremely impressed uh, with his work. I, I read Pillar of Fire and Parting the Waters. Um, I love Ross Douthat. I read his book, The Decadent Society. <laughs> you shouldn't have asked me this question. I read, um, <laughs> I love Stanley Fish, and I'm one of the very few redheaded evangelicals who love him so much. But um, he really helps me. Um, helps me think analytically. And his book, Winning Arguments, I read that for the second time. I guess I'll probably stop there. Uh, I could go on. I read the Harry Potter series. Again, second time. Love the <laughs> friendships there. The Story sure. of Hebrew by Lewis Glennert. Oh, I really wanted to read that because it was about the rise of modern Hebrew and it was everything it was supposed to be. It was, it was really amazing. I'll stop there. Wow. Wonderful uh, selection, some ones I'm not familiar with, so uh, I'll check those out. Uh, Mark, thank you so much for spending time with us today, and you've been an absolute joy and pleasure to interview. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it, I love to hear people who t show their evident love for the work that we do at Faith Life because our mission is to use technology to equip the church to grow in the light of the Bible. And we really do take it seriously. It's not just marketing verbiage. We actually care about this and I most certainly do. So thank you so much for the warmth that you've shown toward the work that we do. Our pleasure. And for anybody listening, if you need help with Logos Bible software coaching or maybe how to pick out a package, what might be the best way uh, to get into the software, there's so many options. We, rec we understand that it can be overwhelming. I want to encourage you to go to our website, bravedaily.com bravedaily.com and sign up with the coach, send us an email. Uh, we would absolutely love to uh, connect with you and find something, a good solution for you as you try to study God's word. Until next time, God bless.